Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, the Lord be with you. Amen. Thank you, and Ginny, thank you so much for reading scripture for us this morning. And I also want to thank all of you for being here on a very, very chilly morning in person, and for those of you who are gathering with us us online, we're grateful that you're here. And if you have your Bible, the Bible you brought, or maybe you're using a pew Bible, if you would turn with me to page 922, I want to have us again reflect on the scriptures we just heard read. Page 922 in the pew Bible. Let's pray together. Lord, you have promised that when we read your word, it will bring us into light. And we pray even now that the Holy Spirit will come and illumine our minds and our thoughts to see things that only you can show us, things that I won't even see that you are causing your children to hear, your church to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the great American businessman, Max Dupree, who said these words that I find helpful. He said that leadership is like third grade. It means repeating the significant things, and I really like that. I know that there might be a few third graders here with us this morning, but most of us here are not in third grade. But this five-week series that we started last week, we're continuing today, and even when Dr. Labaton is here, He will be picking up one of the essentials on worship. This five-week series on the essentials of our congregation, they're worth repeating. And so it's not that I have anything earth-shakingly new to tell you. Rather, I'm here to remind, to encourage, to celebrate, and to help us really focus on these wonderful, essential practices or pathways that the National Presbyterian Church have owned and adopted for several years now. 
And we're betting the farm that if we devote ourselves to these practices, they will have an impact on the way we experience and follow Jesus as a community, as we follow Jesus in the world. This church, thankfully, believes that God is calling us to lead people to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ in the world. That's the belief this church has. We're committed to discipleship, and we haven't figured it out. We haven't cracked the code necessarily on how the best practices on, on, on encouraging discipleship within this community, but that's what we're committed to, to discipleship, to community, to service, and even most importantly, we're committed to a deeper faith. We want to leave the shallow waters. We want to leave that which is superficial and go deep into the ways and the heart of God. And so the mission statement that we have on the bulletin, and I, you'll see it on the screen, I think it describes our hopes, where we're headed, what we're striving for. And if this is your first Sunday with us, I'm really glad that you're here because you get to see just what we are about. We're about leading people, leading people to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and we're doing it together in God's world. But how do we do it, though? How do we get from something that's on paper to something that is actually being lived out and being practiced from here to there? How do we get there? And I believe this is one of the ways we're working at it. It's to keep reminding ourselves that we have a set of pathways. We have a set of practices that is for all of us. And you can see them again on the screen. That worship is central to who we are. Our chief end, our chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever and so worship is at the heartbeat of our congregation. And many of you believe that, and that's why you're here. Whether it's raining or shining or hot or cold, you're showing up for the gathering of God's people for worship. And you're bringing your children, and you want your children to understand that at the center of human existence and human purpose is the worship of, of Almighty God. But we're also about growing we're about caring and learning how to do that well. And we are also about serving. Last Sunday, I mentioned the word reconciliation as sort of a fifth practice. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you can go to our website. You can see that service in its, in its entirety. Or if you just want to hear, hear the sermon, you can also go to our podcast the National Presbyterian Sermons podcast, and you can hear the sermon from last week and other sermons that you would like to listen to. So with your Bibles open then, let's just look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, where Paul says these words, very familiar words for all of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, think about that, our bodies, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is good, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and is perfect. And I don't think I'm exaggerating exaggerating when I say this, that these two verses, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, are in many ways a summary of what the Christian life is all about. If you're here this morning and you're investigating what it means to be a Christian, this is a good starting point. This is the, 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 the Christian life in summary. Two key words to notice. He begins by pointing back and he uses the word therefore. When he says therefore, he's really going back to everything that he had said in chapters 1 through 11. Therefore indicates that we give ourselves to God because of everything that he has said so far. Namely, and you could sum it up this way, chapters 1 through 11, you could sum it up this way, that we are justified by grace alone. And Paul gives examples after examples. And in Romans chapter 4, he talks about Abram being justified and it's through the grace of God by faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. That's a rough summary of what you could say chapters 1 through 11 is all about. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But then the second phrase, he says, in view of God's mercy. Essentially, he's saying the same thing, that the only sufficient motivation for the Christian life is gratitude for grace. I don't know what motivates you. I don't know what impulses you follow from day to day, but Paul is telling us that the central motivation for everything we do, it's this gratitude for grace. It's a response to God's initiative. So he says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, Paul invites us to do two things with our lives. Number one, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is that God doesn't want a purely inward or abstract or sort of a sentimental kind of worship But God is looking for something that is concrete, something that is practical, our bodies, living sacrifice to God. And really, we could say that God doesn't want leftovers. You and I may love leftovers, but God says, no, I want the essence. I want you, not what you have left over. The second thing God, Paul urges in is in verse 2. And here he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And what does that mean? I think what Paul is lifting up for us, he's telling us that we live in what's called contested, contested ground. On one hand, you have the pattern of this world, and it comes rushing in at us in every possible way. We face the onslaught of the patterns of this world seeking to mold us and shape us and push us and prod us into a certain way of life. And Paul says, no, no, do not 
be conformed to that pattern anymore. There's another pattern that I want you to follow, and it's the pattern of God's will. And it's something that we have control over. We can say no to the pattern of this world, and we can say yes to the pattern of God's will. So Paul wants us to have our eyes open, recognize where God is at work, and go in that direction, recognize where the world and its distortions are at work, and reject it. And it reminds me of Jesus and his experience in the desert, in the wilderness. I'm so glad as we head into Lent that we're reminded of that story where Jesus, after he was baptized, he comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit prods him, pushes him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. He was fasting for 40 days, and at the end of the fast, the devil shows up and tempts him. And one of the temptations, the devil took him up to this high place and said to him, listen, if you bow down to me, that's the pattern of the world. If you do things the way I want you to do it, all these things I can give to you. And that's the temptation you and I face every single day, trying to find that, 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 that shortcut to get to what we think is the right destination. That's the pattern of the world. That's the devil at work. And Paul says to reject that. Now, what happens when we no longer think and act according to the pattern and the values of the world? What happens when we reject that and we begin to think and frame our, our, our way of life around the kingdom of God and God's will for us? Then something very unpresbyterian happens to us. We become inflamed with the truth about Jesus Christ. We are set ablaze, we are on fire with love and devotion for Jesus Christ. Another way to say it is that our imagination then is captured by Christ. We begin to think of Jesus, who is Jesus? What did he do? Why did he die for me? And you begin to think and pattern your life after him. And when we do that, we are set ablaze with a fire that burns brightly within us. I believe this happens through the power of the Holy Spirit who takes the truth about who Jesus is transforms our mind and we are set on that path of living and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So where are you today? Have you presented your body as a living sacrifice to Christ? And are you living then according to God's will, not from the values and the pressures of the world around you because they're always at odds. They're like oil and water. They cannot coexist. I found C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, very helpful in thinking about this because he describes what happens to us when our minds are set ablaze in Christ is that we increasingly become what he calls little Christs. Little Christ. And there is that specific line, that specific line in his book, 
which really dovetails with what we're talking about this morning, which is this transformation, this discipleship. Lewis writes this. He says that every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And I agree with him, and I hope you do. To walk like Christ, to think his thoughts, to live the way he's called us to live. And so for Lewis, for Paul, for all of Scripture, the ultimate goal of Christian discipleship is Christ-likeness, becoming more like him in character and in conduct, and it changes the way we see the world and live in the world. You know, last Sunday, something really special happened here at National. Close to over 100 of you stayed behind after the second service, and you gave your time in making sandwiches for our mission partner, Martha's Table. And as I was thinking through today's message, today's talk, I kept asking myself, now why do people do that? What's the impulse? Now, clearly, some of the impulses might be impure, but I want to believe that many of us are giving our time and our talents and our resources because we are seeking to approximate our lives around the same descriptor that C.S. Lewis uses. We are little Christs. When I consider what we did last Sunday, it makes me think about Jesus. It really does. And the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, seeing the multitude, seeing that they were hungry, does this amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000. Why did Jesus do that? Well, Matthew 20 and verse 28 really helps us to understand Jesus' motivation. Jesus said that as the, as the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is Jesus' motivation. I want to believe that that is our motivation too. That National Presbyterian Church, we are here not to be served, but to serve. Think about the last time you walked into a restaurant. Somebody greeted you. Someone led you to your seat. They gave you a, a, a bullet, not a bulletin. They gave you a menu. <laughs> they gave you a menu. They gave you water. You had an opportunity to look at the menu and place your order, and then they brought the food in. And while you're eating, you ever notice that? While you're eating, they come back to you and say, so how is everything? And even if it's not good, I don't know, I find myself saying, it's good, it's good. <laughs> but that's not we are. We're not a restaurant. If anything, we are an outpost of the kingdom of God. We're a hospital. We're here to serve. It's not about us. And I know worship and all that we do on a Sunday morning can easily, easily devolve into something other than the glory of God. We want to make sure that air temperature is right and everything goes well and then we can say it was good and that's not the approach we want to take. The approach we take is the approach Jesus took. We take a, a basin of water, 
we take a towel and we walk around and see who can I serve, whose feet can I wash. And why do we do that? Because the founder of Christianity said it. I'm not here to be served, he said. I'm a servant. And it makes sense then that as we, our minds are captured by the, the wonder of who Jesus is, it makes sense then that we mimic him in that way and we serve. We're little Christs. Would you look at verse 5 with me? Romans 12, verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ. Think of the power behind that statement. As we heard from the children, they all recognize gifts that they have, and they're not the same. They're different gifts. But imagine when we come together and use those gifts in an intentional way to advance the kingdom of God, that is a powerful imagery. One body, individually, we're members of one another, serving our community and serving our world, and that's how we move the needle and make a difference. So we know why we're doing it. We're doing it because the one whom we love and adore was a servant. But how do we serve, though? And if you would look at verse 5 in Romans, in verse 6 rather, in Romans 12, we see how we do it. Paul says, we have gifts. And it was so wonderful to hear the kids, even at this tender age, recognizing that they're uniquely and wonderfully made and identifying the abilities that they have. But that's true for us. Even at this stage of our lives, we have gifts. Some of us deny them. But we have gifts, and these gifts are all different, but they're given to us by the grace of God. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he empowers the church. He fills the church with these gifts. And then as disciples and followers of Jesus, we're filled up, and we pour out those gifts in joyful service to the Lord in the various places and the situations. And why do we do that? because that's what Jesus did, and we are little Christs. And I want you to notice the variety of the gifts. Would you look at that again? Let's look at your text, because some of us have the gift of prophecy. And if that is your gift, Paul says, use it. Use it in proportion to your faith. Some of us have the, the gift of ministry. And that word literally means diakonia, deacons, ministers, service, and if that's your gift, then use it to the glory of God. Some of us have the gift of teaching, and for some of you, you were in Sunday school either being taught or you were doing the teaching, and you were teaching our kids, and you were teaching our high school, and you were teaching the adults, and I say, God bless you and thank you. You're using that gift, but it's not only in the church. Some of you are teachers at home, and you're teaching in the university and you're teaching in high school and in the elementary schools, you are teaching. Paul says, use that gift. And some of us have the gift of exhortation. You have a way of just finding that, that word that's needed. And you can speak that word in such a way that it is received by your listeners and it encourages them. And that is a wonderful gift. I have had people in my life, and maybe you have too, you're at a state where the tank is kind of empty, and somebody comes along, 
Maybe it's in a card, a phone call, a letter, or they sit you down face to face and they just speak words like water to a thirsty soul. Use that gift. And then some of us, if you have the gift of giving, give in generosity. It's, inter it's interesting the word giver is a, very, is a compound word. It means mega giving, mega didomi. Mega giving. Not necessarily that you're giving a million dollars, which would be great. <laughs> but it's more the idea that you find joy in giving, give generously. And so the widow's might was not a million dollars, but it was her mega gift. And Jesus noticed it. And she gave generously. And then for those of us who are leaders, there are leaders in this congregation. And Paul says, in whatever capacity you're leading, lead with diligence. The word there means to lead with zeal. Lead with persistence. Leaders, you don't give up. And if you have the gift of showing compassion, then do it with a smile. Do it cheerfully. So what is your posture? What's your attitude when it comes to serving God through your gifts? Let me remind you again, it's the Holy Spirit who distributes these gifts, gives us the power to have the attitude that is pleasing to the Lord as we serve. And so, this may sound strange to you, but you know the priority isn't making sandwiches. That's not the priority. The priority is that we are developing the mind and the attitude of Christ as we're making the sandwiches. It's more about who we are becoming and not what we're doing. Why don't you look at this quote? Because I, 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 I store these quotes in my electronic files and sometimes I don't write the name of the person or the book I got it from, but I found this quote. And it's a great reminder that it's not about what we're doing, it's who we're becoming. Notice what it says, the outward work, the making of the sandwiches will never be puny if the inward work is great. That's the work of the Spirit transforming us, rejecting the pattern of this world, accepting the will of God as the course for your life, your mind being captured by the imagination of God, and you bring all of that into the act of making sandwich, then the work becomes great. It's never puny. But then it cautions that the outward work can never be great or even good if the inward work is puny or of little work. That's a warning for me as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, that there are seasons in my life when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm doing it from a place of profound emptiness. And I often become resentful, irritable, short-wicked when the inward work is small in my life. And that's the reason why prayer has to be a priority for us because we come before God and we say, Lord, help me, strengthen me, give me more of yourself. You're filled up, and then no matter what you're doing, that's the attitude, that's how we serve. And then through the rest of the passage, verses 9 through 11, he describes then what it looks like when God's people are, are unleashed. He says the love will be genuine. 
We will hate what is evil. There's that choice again. We will hate what is evil. We will hold fast to what is good. We will love one another with mutual affection. We will outdo one another in showing honor. We will not be lazy or lagging in zeal. The same word that's used to describe leaders, zeal. But we will be ardent, excited. We will be inflamed. We will be boiling over as we serve the Lord. And the question then is, where do we practice the essentials? Where do we do it? Some people say, well, we do it in the church. Yes, we do, but that is not enough. This place isn't big enough for the power of God that is in this room. This place, this building, this campus is way too small. We were made not just for this place. We were made for the world. We were made for Chicago. Chicago, yes. We were made for D.C. I mean, you know, it's the snow that's doing it to me. <laughs> so wherever you find yourself, you are practicing what it means to serve. I read a story reread a story by the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, beautiful children's story called Martin the Shoemaker. And I think this gets us to everything, the attitude, the reason, the love that is displayed for those who follow Jesus. It's a story about an old shoemaker his name is Martin, and one day he gets word. Somehow he gets a word that Jesus is going to visit him tomorrow. He's not quite sure, though, whether he's just making it up in his mind or whether it's really going to happen. So what does he do? The following day, Martin, eager with anticipation, jumps out of bed and gets ready, and he goes out onto the street, and he's looking one way, and he's looking the other way, and he's looking around the corner to see which way Jesus is coming. But while he's looking, guess what he sees? He sees a little boy out there shoveling snow. It's cold. And when the little boy is finished shoveling snow, Martin invites him over. It's his neighbor's boy. Offers him a cup of hot chocolate so he can warm up a bit. He goes back out and he's looking again. Where is Jesus trying to find him? And while he's out there looking, guess what he sees? He sees an old woman walking down the street. She is not dressed for the weather. She literally, she's in rags and she is trembling as she's going along. And Martin runs inside and grabs a coat and brings it to the lady and wraps her in that warmth of that heavy coat. And the day ends and Martin is disappointed because he looked every possible angle, angle and didn't see Jesus. And so he goes to bed and he's asleep. And while he's sleeping, this voice, Martin, did you see me? And in the dream, Martin says, where, Lord? I, I looked everywhere. I didn't see you. Well, Jesus says, it was, it was I, the boy who was shoveling. And it was I, the woman, who was shivering in the cold. And that's the reason why this building is not big enough for what God wants to do through this church. It really happens out in the world, in your home, where you work, 
and wherever God would call you. Here's what makes it hard, though. We live in a very celebrity drunk culture. And we look at the people who seem to be doing it and we say, well, I'm not wired that way, so I don't think God is going to use me. And we think, yeah, let, let, let them do it. They seem to be more capable, more educated. They've got the right smile. They have the right personality. They're outgoing and I'm so, I'm so quiet. I, I just don't see how someone like me can make a difference. And I can honestly tell you there have been seasons in my journey where I literally had that mindset. But I'm so glad when I continue to read and study and learn that there are people like Harriet Tubman. She was only one person born into slavery in the state of Maryland. She escaped from slavery, and you would think she would go to the other side of the world and try to find a new life, but instead, she becomes the conductor for the Underground Railroad. And she kept going back into that contested territory, rescuing slaves and bringing them to freedom. I'm so glad for people like Dr. Virginia Apgar, who didn't think she was only one person, because of her strong advocacy for maternal and newborn health, God used her to play a significant role in raising awareness about the importance of immediate assessment and care of newborns, and she changed the way hospitals operate. She changed the way newborns are cared for in the first five minutes of their lives. Have you ever heard of the APGAR score? And in so doing, God rest her soul, she helped save millions of babies from death. I'm so glad for people like Corey Ten Boom. Nothing special about her. But what happened was the Nazis invaded Netherlands. Corrie Ten Boom and her family could not sit still. They showed extraordinary courage and compassion and commitment to their Christian beliefs. And during one of the darkest periods of history, she opened her home under the pain of death, and she hid Jewish people who were so, so hated by the Nazis and saved many of them from the gas chambers. So don't say you're just little old you, because God delights in calling people from the margins and using them. The Good Samaritan, just just one person, but he made a difference in the life of the man who was mugged. Never underestimate what you can do with a life that is set ablaze to the glory of God. But again, the first thing we've got to do is say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing, that's step number one. Lord, I am yours. My body, my life, my all, what I think I have, what I hope to have, Lord, I am yours. And then you'll be amazed at how God then will use your life
in the small places where you are right now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let us just pray. Let us pray right now. Oh God, the cry of our heart this morning is that you would use us. Our world is in turmoil. Our communities are in trouble. Maybe even within our families, there is great pain. Lord, use us, Lord. Use us for your glory. Use our hands. Use our feet. Use our voices. Use our love even to change one person's life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.